we go. <clears throat> okay, before we jump into the text this morning, I want to talk to our young ones here. I'm going to tell you what the, the text is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. Uh, we do this every Sunday, so this is going to get us all on the same page here. Uh, young ones, who here is handy? Y'all know what it means to be handy? Like, who here considers themselves to be handy around the house? Like, can you fix stuff? Can you put stuff together? <clears throat> I'm the most unhandy. Drizzy, yes, thank you. Okay, we've got one. Uh, I'm the most unhandy person there is. Uh, I have this this morning, my iPad, because uh, my printer had paper jam, and I'm not handy enough to get uh, fix a paper jam in my printer. It's terrible. I have a hard time hanging pictures on walls. It's embarrassing. Um, <clears throat> do you all know, but let me, uh, my, to my handy men and women here, do you all know, uh, have you all ever used a screwdriver? Okay, if you want to screw some, you know, screw a, a, into the wall, which way do you turn the screwdriver? There it is, right. And if you want it to get loose, you turn it to the left. So there it is, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't always work. One time, and this isn't just because I'm the worst handyman ever, I was trying to take a screw out uh, of, uh, of a wall, and I was turning left, turning left, turning left, and this screw was just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And I was getting madder and madder and madder. Uh, and, and, and finally, uh, I, like I gave up, and I found out, like a long time later, there are lefty screws. They're called, uh, what are they called? Left-handed threads. They used to make screws for left, lefties, left-handed people. Do we have any left-handed people here? Yeah, okay, well, they've got screws for you, and there's another one right there. Yeah, uh, I didn't know this. Okay, so uh, you have to go in the opposite direction. Okay, God is like that sometimes. God is, what, is like a reverse screw. So, so there are so many things in this world, uh, the, there's so many things that this world will tell us is right that is actually left. Kidding. Wrong. Um, that's wrong. Like the world will say happiness. If you want to be happy, do, do whatever makes you happy. And, and God says, no, that's actually not what's going to give you happiness. What gives you happiness is love and sacrifice and knowing him. The world will say freedom. You want to be free? You should be, you just be, do whatever you want to do. Uh, be free to do whatever you want to do. And God says, that's, that's not freedom, that's slavery. If you want to be free, follow God's rules, follow God's laws. The world will say truth is whatever you want it to be. You know, whatever you think is true is true for you. And God says, no, I am truth. I tell you what's true. So the more the more we try to live according to the way the world says to live, it's like trying to uh, screw in a reverse screw. Nothing's going to happen. Like you're not going, like the more you try, the less you are going to get what you really, really want. And we're going to be, uh, young ones, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. This is Old Testament. And what we're going to see is Israel wants to live like the world lives. And they want a king over them, just like the, the nations around them have these kings, these bad, bad kings. They want a worldly king. They don't want God as their king anymore. And God is going to give them this worldly king to show them how terrible of a decision it is. Uh, uh, that, that we actually, this is for us, we really, really do need God as our king. We really do. Today, tomorrow, for the rest of your lives, you need God to tell you how to live. 
and not just tell you how to live. Young ones, you need God to do life for you. As in, you really need Jesus to live life for you, and you need him to die death for you. It's this crazy thing. This is one of those reverse screw things of Jesus's life and Jesus's death that gives you eternal life. That even though you will die, you will live. The way to live, this is the reverse screw thing, the way to live is to trust Jesus's death gives you life. The way to live is to die. That is like to die to us being the kings of our own lives. And trust God to be our king. So we'll see today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, we've just, if you're just joining us, we've just started this series in uh, the spring, 1st, 2nd Samuel. <clears throat> For context, let me give us a little context of how did we get here. Uh, like, in, where are we in history? This is sweeping context here. God brought Israel out of slavery. You know, Moses let my people go. He brings Israel out of slavery and he brings them into the promised land of Canaan. Moses and Joshua, the two great leaders of Israel, they have died. They're gone now, okay? They got them into the promised land, and now they're gone. And when Joshua dies, Israel is surrounded by all these enemies. Well, Israel decides to stop worshiping God. And they start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And it doesn't take long before those enemies start oppressing Israel and enslaving Israel. And Israel gets so desperate, guess who they cry out to? They cry out to God. Save us. And God, because he's gracious, he raises up a hero to save them. Those are the judges. God raises up a judge to save Israel, and everyone's happy until that judge dies. And then Israel goes back to worshiping like the nations, worshiping false idols. <clears throat> turn away from God again. Those people start enslaving Israel again. They turn back to God again. God raises up another judge, and on and on and on the cycle goes. But here we are in First and Second Samuel in chapter 8 this morning, we've actually come to the end of the cycle with Samuel, who is the last of the judges. Please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn, firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. These were judges in Beersheba. Yet, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. <clears throat> then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways for the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. 
and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, <clears throat> some to plow his ground and weep his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll, he will take the tenth of your grain and your, of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> hey, when Samuel, when Samuel first became judge, Israel had been worshiping the idol gods of the, of the nations around them, the Ashtoreths and the Baals, which were the female goddesses of war and love and their male counterparts, the gods of storm and rain. Uh, Samuel leads Israel to repent, to, to give up uh, that worship and to return to God. But here at the end of Samuel's ministry, it looks like, it sounds like Israel is running to idolatry again. But not back to the Ashtoreths and, and to the Baals, but they ask Samuel to give them a king. And the big question we've got to ask is, okay, wait, wanting a king, is that really idolatry? Well, uh, if you look at this sweep of history, uh, and I'm going to pause here. Hey, Matt, you're up. Will you get me a little glass of water? Because my throat clearing. You're already up. Thanks, Bob. You're the best. <laughs> uh, if you, uh, if you look at the sweep of history, uh, ancient Near East, kings themselves, is this idolatry? Kings themselves were idolaters because they considered themselves to be uh, divine god kings. So you, maybe you all have heard, heard of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, King Tut. His Egyptian name means the idol of the god Ammon. Uh, you were supposed to treat him as the embodiment of the god Ammon. This goes on and on and on. You've got uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You got uh, uh, the he, he makes an idol, tells everyone to worship that idol. You got the Persian king who says everyone's got to pray to him. Daniel refuses. Uh, this even goes into the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament world, the church has to deal with this. Uh, you know, the God Caesar Caesars believe themselves to be God. Domitian, one emperor, wants to be referred to as my Lord and my God. The, these, there is this ancient Near Eastern idolatry of kings believing they are gods, okay? Uh, and you got to ask, like, well, they knew, like, they knew they were born yesterday. They knew, like, they hadn't created the world. So where does this ideology, idolatry, like, come from? Well, it's, they're the highest authority. They answer to no one. And if you don't answer to anyone else and you're the highest authority, you believe yourself to be God. So that's the broader context for 1 Samuel 8 uh, and, 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 you know, the stuff of, of kings. But question remains, was this really idolatry for Israel to ask Samuel to give them a king? Thanks, brother. Okay, super helpful. 
Uh, that's super helpful. Okay. Was that, uh, is that, is that idolatry to ask for a king? Because, because uh, from chapters 8 to 12, all this gets worked out. They get a king. Israel gets a king. But it is confusing. It's confusing as you read all these chapters. Even here, at times it sounds like God is against it. And then he's for it. It, it, it sounds like Samuel is against it. And then he's for it. At, at one point, God says, yes. Give them a king at another point. It's called a terrible sin. And so, is this a good thing or not? Yeah. No. Yes. Uh, it's confusing because Israel was promised a king. We read this at the very beginning of the service. Israel was promised a king all the way back in Genesis. <clears throat> Before Israel was ever a thing. God told Abraham, you know, who is the ancestor of all the Israelites, uh, Kings were going to come through his line. And then when Israel becomes a king, <clears throat> sorry, when Israel becomes a thing, God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 17 that Israel will have kings. And the timing here, <clears throat> excuse me, y'all, <clears throat> the timing here in 1 Samuel 8, it is right for a king. The timing is right. According to these earlier promises, in Deuteronomy 17, when God tells Moses, hey, there are going to be kings, he says that Israel gets a king after Israel has moved into the land of Canaan, and after Israel has settled the land of Canaan, which took several hundred years, but they've done it up to this point. All the tribes of Israel, you know, up to Samuel, they've been moving around into the land, they've been warring with the Canaanites, all the local judges all over Israel have been leading and doing the leading and doing the warring and doing the fighting for Israel to overcome the Canaanites. And here we are now. Finally, it, the land is no longer fragmented. The judges have unified all the land into a coherent territory. So the timing is right according to God's timing. Now all Israel has to do, according to Deuteronomy 17, is to appoint the king that God chooses. So what's the problem? God promised they would have a king. The timing is right. And so they say, let's have a king. And Samuel and God say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and you want to ask, well, what's the problem? How is this idolatry? And the simple answer is, <clears throat> the people wanted a king like the nations, not the king that God would choose. God says to Samuel, this is Israel rejecting him, God, again. It's not, this isn't exactly a new problem. When Israel got to the promised land, they wanted what the bigger surrounding nations already had. They wanted a king of their own. They don't want these judges uh, who are, you know, yeah, they're raised up and then they die. And then who's going to be the next judge? And it's not his son. It's, it's not a succession thing. They're left wondering, like, who's next? Who's going to lead us? They look around and they want a strong king. And they want a dynasty of succession. They want a line of kings. So later in chapter 12, when Samuel is recounting how low Israel has sunk here, sunk to a new low, he rehearses what happened here. And this is what he says. You learn this in uh, a few chapters. Samuel says, when you, he's talking to Israel, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. So they're rejecting God. And the why. Why do they want a worldly king instead of God as their king? This account is really, really a clever bookend to what's already come. Last chapter started with Israel keeping God at an arm's distance and then crying about God's absence. 
Then Samuel returns them to God. Uh, and now that Samuel here is at the end of his life, Israel is once again departing from God, and they're lamenting it once again, keeping God uh, uh, once again at the same time at an arm's distance. They don't want God as their king. And it's because they cannot control God. They want a king that looks like them, that acts like them. They want to be led the way they want to be led. There's a show called The Office. Uh, uh, this is later, and this is like season seven. Uh, uh, they need a new boss. They need a new uh, manager. And so they've formed this search committee, and they're interviewing everyone about it. And they interview Ryan Howard, who is the temp forever. And he's, he actually got to be like one of the big bosses and then fell from grace and was, you know, super scandalous. But this is what he says. Ryan Howard says, so, okay, I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just, like, boss me around, you know. Like, lead me. Lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. That, th- th- this is a, that's us. That's us. And this is Israel. They want a king that looks just like them, uh, who will lead them the way they want to be led. Not, not God. Uh, one commentator says uh, this about Israel here. He says, in search of autonomy, they reject God as king, and in doing so, choose tyranny. It's the great lie. It's the great lie that runs all the way through the Bible. In bondage to the rule of God is perfect freedom. In rejection of the rule of God, there is absolute tyranny and despair. Okay, the laughable, but sad irony when they say we need a king to lead us out into the battle. They say we need a king to lead us out in battle. Like the day they had returned to God and gathered for worship, they're at their worship service, and the Philistines see it, and the Philistines come to attack them with their armies. They're going to decimate them as they're worshiping, and they cry out to God, and God comes down from heaven and obliterates the Philistines, fights their battle for them. It's like, what, have y'all forgotten this? Have y'all lost your mind? And yes, because this is what idolatry does. Idolatry alters our reality, and you start believing lies. There's this, uh, there's this show called The Office, but this, this one isn't about the show, okay? But uh, the guy who played Ryan is like the head writer of the show. He also wrote a book. Uh, it's called One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories. It's a collection of you know, short stories, and, and he's got this one called The Rematch, and it's a take on the tortoise and the hare from Aesop's Fables. Uh, you you got to remember the hare is constantly ragging on the tortoise, how slow he is. The tortoise gets sick of all the abuse, and he challenges the hare to a race. The, the hare is super overly confident that he's just going to crush the tortoise. So in the middle of the race, the hare takes a nap. And when the hare wakes up, he finds out uh, that his competitor, crawling slowly but steadily, has already arrived at the finish line, defeating the hare. And and it's this thing of slow and steady wins the race. That's the original story. So B.J. Novak, he picks up on that story, and he imagines this crushing loss. The hare becomes, the rabbit becomes depressed. Uh, and, and gets totally out of shape, and he, and, he, and he gets religion, and he gets to the point where he believes the only way, only way forward is through a rematch. Uh, and so the hare challenges the tortoise to a rematch. It becomes this media spectacle. Tortoise, will there be a rematch? And the tortoise decides, I am undefeated against the hare. Actually, I'm 1-0. and 
I, I am undefeated in my entire racing career. How do you win a race? Slow and steady. That's what they say, right? Well, I invented slow and steady. This is good. One time could have been a fluke. Twice there will be no question. Rematch on. So the hare starts training like crazy, drinking his protein shades, working out, getting his rabbit hair physique back and watching footage from his old races. He's got the newspaper clippings of his loss all over, you know, his room. Race day comes. They take their positions at the starting line. The gun goes off, and this is what it says. It says, within seconds, the hare was in the lead by hundreds of yards. Within minutes, the hare had taken the lead by more than a mile. The tortoise crawled on slow and steady, but as he became anxious at having lost sight of his competitor and panicked over what, had seemed to have done, what he seemed to have done to his legacy, he started speeding up Less slow, less steady, but it hardly mattered. Before long, less than 20 minutes after the seven-mile race had begun, uh, word had worked its way back to the beginning of the race that the hare had not only won the contest, had not only recorded a time that was his personal best, but had also set world records not only for all hares, but for all mammals under 20 pounds. When news reached the tortoise, still essentially under the banner of the starting line, he fainted. Oh, now he's napping. Isn't that rich? Heckled a nearby goat. And for, get it, the hair earlier? Napped? Okay. And for those who were there for both contests knew what was so special about what they had witnessed, slow and steady wins the race until truth and talent claim their place. The point, the point is, the point is, uh, we tell these stories to make a point and convey a message like slow and steady wins the race. And we all just accept this as true, but when you think about it, you realize it's ridiculous and erroneous. Slow and steady doesn't win the race. The truth, truth and talent always dominate slow and steady. The Bible says there are these messages that our culture and society tell us over and over, and, and we just accept these as true. But when you think about them in the light of God's word, you realize these messages from our culture, they're not only ridiculous, they're dangerous. The so what? The so what for us is being able to identify those stories. Those narratives in our world and our lives that attempt to alter reality. You can't hide or escape being bombarded by these narratives. You're surrounded by, you know, political leaders, media, all kinds of, you know, groups, celebrities, professors, friends, family, who exalt themselves to God's throne Tell us how we should live in ways that are totally at odds with the way that God says we should live. Our, our, our uh, theologian, Professor Rick Lentz, who was just here with us last week, he talks about these particular popular narratives of today that you're familiar with. There's the identity narrative. Uh, you decide who you are. Be true to yourself and then demand everyone else accept whoever you say you are. There's the happiness narrative. Do whatever makes you happy. Uh, and don't sacrifice for anyone else so that you can be happy. The freedom narrative, you should be free to, however you, to live however you want. Morality narrative, decide for yourself what's right and wrong. Technology narrative, we don't need religion. Technology solves all our problems. Uh, th these go on and on. Th these are all narratives, stories masquerading as truth, but they're idols. They're idolatrous narratives that push God out of the picture, push him out of the picture unworshipped, and unconsidered, you know, regardless, regardless of who the next president is, uh, uh, y'all, the, the House, the Senate, Supreme Court, it, it's composed of leaders. And yeah, we want, we want good leaders, sure, but these, these rulers are not 
the ultimate answer to our crisis of leadership because our ultimate problems are not social issues, environmental, economic, domestic. It's not healthcare, it's not criminal, it's not foreign policy, immigration. Th those, I don't, hear me say, those all matter. Those are all important issues. Very, very important. Of course they matter. But the throne of our leaders is not an eternal throne. And their rule over you is not an eternal rule. Neither is your professors, your bosses, any group or celebrity or media. And they can't deliver you from your big problem of sin, death, the devil. And when we remember, uh, 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 this, this is what takes us back. Repenting, going back to the leader that we actually need. But here's the temptation. is It's not just to turn to worldly leaders uh, to rule your life. It's the temptation to become your own kind of leader, leader, ruler of your own life. Uh, you know, this thing of leaders, you know, if you find yourself in any kind of leadership position, what, what is expected of leaders? Leaders are expected to be omniscient. People following, following you expect you to set your five-year goals as if you knew what was going to happen in five years, even though you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, the Bible says, sow your fields in the morning and the evening because you don't know which one's going to work. We, we, don't know the begin, we don't know the end from the beginning, so why do we act like we do? Because the people following you expect you to know because they don't know, and that scares them. Uh, the founder of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School of Business, as Ron Heifetz once said this, he said, the most dangerous part of leadership is that business leaders need to be able to admit that they're learning on the job. But no one wants to hear that. They want to hear the five-year plan. And leaders are expected to be omnipotent and act like they can do everyone else's job better than those people can do them. And, the, and leaders pretend to be, in, uh, you know, inexhaustible. You know, you don't need sleep and you're omnipresent. You can be at every meeting uh, at once. And, and leaders are expected to say mistakes were made, not, I'm sorry, I made mistakes. And this is not a leadership seminar. Uh, what this means is, your life is not yours to control either. You don't rule your life. Uh, and so you don't have to stretch yourself so thin as if you did. Your successes, your failures, your suffering, your death, the suffering and death of your loved ones, it is all ultimately beyond your control. And that's a good thing. It would be a really bad thing if you ever could attain to that kind of power and control because you're not fit to rule your life. But God is. At the very end, here we're ending here, at the end of 1 Samuel 8, God says, okay, I'm going to discipline you with this experience of you, you getting what you want. So the warning God gives here is, is, you know, wanting a king like the nations, uh, this king is going to take and take and take. It says it here six times. This king is all about taking for himself. People, property, your freedom, all for himself. This is a self-serving, self-aggrandizing king. And the irony is, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, and the Lord tells Samuel to obey the voice of the people. Now, another commentator has put it like this, what future is there in this kind of monarchy? What future can there be in a monarchy that is established on the basis of the refusal of the people to listen to the voice of God's servant? What ultimate hope is there? None. And we're going to see that with Saul, who is going to be king. And then we're going to see it with David, too. 
And by the time you get to the New Testament, the people realize there's got to be a king who outkings all these other kings because we never, we've never had a king that actually get, you know, fulfills all that we're hoping for. And the question in the New Testament is, could Jesus really be this king? And this is the great lie, that if you trust in Jesus, he will take every good thing away from you. You won't get what you want. Go with someone else, anybody else. Go with yourself over going with Jesus. But the reverse is true. It is true, this King Jesus will take everything. He will take all of you. But this is the king who gives all of himself to get all of you. At the end of his life, Jesus is wearing a crown of thorns, not gold. He ascends a cross, not a throne, all for you. He gives all of himself because he wants all of you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we thank you as we continue on in this study of uh, your word. Uh, that you would point us to our great king, the one that we so desperately need. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.